Hey everyone, it is Seth and Eric, and we are excited to come back with another week of the Going Zero podcast. Um, I'm out here in New York. Eric looks like you're in a cozy cafe somewhere. I'm in a cozy cafe, otherwise known as my daughter's bedroom. I like it. It looks great. I like the decorations you put there. It's very realistic. Everything's nice. Yeah, I spent weeks doing this. She's very contemporary too. I mean, it's very sophisticated. I think, you know, with the books, the cookie, the coffee, and it looks like maybe an umbrella there too with a very long handle. It is raining outside. It's raining in California. So, hey, let's see. It's, it's what happens. You know, that's where we're getting right now. It's a good thing we need it. Um, we don't need it in LA as much though because of all the issues we're seeing with the floods. But let's not go into flooding today. We can do that another day because we have so many topics to go into. Um, today, Eric, I think we have a couple good t- topics. One is a big breakdown of the formation and the historical events that took place for the formation of the EPA. And then two is talking just about what's going on this week with with environmental news. So let's kick it off with environmental news. I know you have something fun you want to bring up here. Yeah, I mean, I, I know we have lots of things to talk about, but I am super excited to talk about bed bugs. I don't know about you, Seth. Are you ready to hear about it? Because I've been waiting all week to talk about bed bugs. So in the lead up to the Paris Olympics, uh, there are stories that came out that there is a huge bed bug infestation and that there's just a huge concern coming up to the Summer Olympics, which was what first put it on my radar and then ran across this story this week, um, which basically comes down to getting rid of bed bugs is trickier than ever. And this story was really comprehensive, um, but it comes down to that there's two different types of bed bugs, Seth. Did you know that? I was not aware of that. Yeah. So there's the common bed bug, and the Latin term for those is Cmex lectolorius. I butchered yes. that, but that's close enough. That's close enough. They are known to be living in the northern hemisphere, but they have a cousin, the tropical bed bug, Cmex hemipterus and they typically only stayed around the equator area however due to warming climate conditions they are now being found in the united states sweden italy norway finland china japan france central europe spain even in russia which one expert said would have once been unthinkable. So the bed bug scourge is upon us, Seth. So talk to me about what's what's the difference between the common bed bug and the tropical one? I don't think there's much of a difference. I think one is probably bigger and likes to sip on Mai Tais. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just think they're, they're different versions uh, that, uh, probably are the same ultimately i don't know i'm not an expert on bed bugs what are you asking me these questions for no no that makes sense i guess um yeah i mean i think what you're saying what i understand correctly if i understand correctly bed bugs they've been around forever not going anywhere but what we're seeing right now due to these climate catastrophes and issues that are going around the climate is that with the change in climate these tropical bed bugs that were once confined to tropical areas are now essentially making their ways 
up and down up into Russia as I mean as far as far north as Russia. Yeah, correct? yeah, correct. And it's indications of one the globalized world we live in where people are moving around a lot more, but also the fact that uh the weather is probably warming to an extent where these bugs can live in uh more temperate areas where they probably weren't normally able to exist. But going back to how long they've been around or and how long we've dealt with them, it this they they emerged, bed bugs have are known to have emerged 115 million years ago before the dinosaurs went extinct. So these guys have been around for a long time. They're probably not going anywhere one way or the other. Um, there are preserved bed bugs found in the quarters of workers in ancient Egypt some 3,500 years ago. So again, they're around, they've been around for a long time. Um, I think that the other element kind of going back to our discussion about ddt and some of the things with rachel carson's and silent spring is that ddt was used to try to uh get rid of the the bed bugs uh back in the 60s and 70s uh and it was impactful but it didn't get rid of them and now uh like the common bed bug the tropical version has also grown resistant to many standard pesticides uh, to the point where some experts say they wouldn't bother spraying if they found them in their home. And huh. beyond that, uh, economically, there's an estimate that fight, fighting bed bugs is costing the United States just by our, just in this one country, a billion dollars annually. So it does have uh, economic impacts as well. Well, I think, I mean, what we're seeing to your point is Look, these climate, all the climate catastrophes, all these issues we're talking about around the climate impact us in so many ways, big or small, that we don't even pay attention to. And one is, hey, there's an infestation of bed bugs, not only the common bed bug, but, but the tropical ones, the cousins as well, that are coming up everywhere and causing over, like to your point, at least a billion dollars in damages in the U.S., and it's unhealthy too because then you get the big bug bites you have to go to the hospital all these key issues and then you have a place like paris which was infested with bed bugs last summer and tourism sinks so it impacts their economy overall people don't want to stay there people are demanding refunds people are unhealthy people are sick people get the hell out of there yeah and i think they they can spread disease in in different ways i don't know if they're, they, they say that this, there's not really a human to human transmission type of element, but potentially from uh, animal to animal transmission. There's also cases where, say in Africa, the mosquito nets that were, that are an important part of keeping malaria under control, uh, people wind up not wanting them to use them because bed bugs wind up uh, living in, in those. And so it could lead to the not using uh, mosquito nets as much anymore and spreading malaria. So there's there's these weird re weird repercussions that bed bugs create that I never anticipated. No, for sure. I mean, I think one of the things we can you know that really plays into is just especially as the climate changes, all of these different types of diseases and issues that were probably contained to certain latitudes if you will 
are now going to are going to hit are going to basically be able to spread everywhere. Yeah, that's right. Huge, so we talked about concern. flooding yeah. happening in Southern California, the fires in Northern California, because we're California guys, um, the way it impacts us, but all of these other types of issues are going to be become more and more prevalent. Yeah, definitely. And I'll just finish on with a funny note here that if you do have bed bugs, I have a remedy that you definitely should not follow. Okay. Yeah, I'd love to hear. Please tell me for this. Yeah. All right. So back in a control guide from 1725, there's a recipe for cat juice. This recipe called for suffocating and skinning a cat, roasting it on a spit, mixing the drippings with egg yolk and oil, and smearing this into the crevices around your bed. Oh, is that so, avocado oil, or does it say what type of oil? I, I think you could choose any oil you want, but the cat is definitely an important element of the recipe. Wow. We do not advocate for doing this. Yes, this it is, is not, not a family recipe, and this is not going in your book on home remedies, so we're all good. Good. Well, listen, let's get into the EPA because I'm really excited to get into that. Um, you know, I've been really studying other things, studying the timeline of sustainability and the EPA. And I guess a couple key things that I've learned was, you know, in the 1800s, the Industrial Revolution taking place, these factories going up. And the factories are going up everywhere and smoke is billowing nonstop. Coal is being burned nonstop. People can see like, you know, fish are dying, like it's polluting rivers, polluting, polluting waterways, polluting London, the air. London fog, right? What was the term around that? Yeah. Yeah. And they're just, it's everywhere and it's sitting there and people are kind of like, hey, something's different, right? I might feel a little bit different, but there's really no regulation in the 1800s and people can talk about all they want. And there's a great article I saw in 1912 of a scientist going, hey, we keep doing this with coal, you know, minimum of 2 million people are going to perish from breathing difficulties. And there's no regulation still. And there really wasn't anything. They kind of went on for decades it did go on for decades untouched unregulated with the ability for all these companies to build factories and dispose of pollutants in any way they saw fit and what i read was you know one of the first things that really one of the first moments that uh the first major catastrophe that caused us to even look at cleaning the air wasn't in the US, it was actually in London. And um, it took place in 1952. And in London, the smog, what they called the fog, got so bad from the coal burning factories that 12,000 people died and over 100,000 people fell very ill. And it caused such commotion and such protest that the government finally had to act. And a few years later, enacted a Clean Air Act. Didn't really have teeth to it, but it was like the first thing I saw 
was the first thing you saw where, hey, we have to do something. And when I was looking at what the EPA did, kind of leads up to that. So can you kind of give me a background on EPA and Eric and kind of walk us through it? And I guess we can start with Silent Spring if you want to or wherever you want to go. Yeah, I think on an interesting note uh, on the London fog element was I remember um, biology uh, lesson in high school, maybe, maybe even college, I forget what, but there's this, and forgive me for not remembering the name of this moth, but there is a moth that, that lived in England and it had different color coloring based off the genetics. And, and, and so most of the moths would be white because the trees that they would live on had white bark. And so birds couldn't see them very well, but you know, there were genetic mutations and every once in a while you'd have a darker colored moth, right? After the, this industrial revolution and the London fog that you just mentioned, a lot of the trees wound up getting covered in a dark soot. And so what happened was the dark moths wound up being living and reproducing more and the white moths wound up getting eaten by the birds. And so the, the overall dominant color of these moths changed in, in a couple of generations based off of the, of the, the pollution in, in, in England. It's just so sad. Yeah. I, um, that's what I mean. And to your point, I think it was um, these impacts. I mean, these, there's all these ramifications from pollutants and what was going on at the time. And it was widely left unregulated. And it seems like we're in a day and age right now where AI, social media, still unregulated. And we probably won't be t- seeing those impacts for decades still and have yep. regulations there for that. Yeah. But right now with pollution... And you're, you're saying with history, too. So we see that in the, the London fog component. What led to the EPA? Because it seemed like it was a multiple multiple events. Yeah, I, I think we, we wanted to sort of pick up off of where we left off with the, the Silent Spring conversation and the Rachel Carson conversation. And, and one of the themes that came out of that was uh, highlighting maybe an increasing distrust of of government authorities or authority figures because some of the information that they claimed was truthful maybe was not so much and and so that that element of skepticism and uh, it made me think of it based off of your discussion of kind of ai and ai oversight and, and things like that is um it it just led to you know kind of a breakdown in, in trust and and an increase in skepticism and an increase in maybe even activism uh, in, in a way. And so picking up on that theme, you know, we, we kind of left off on saying that, you know, it kind of led to the, the introduction of Earth Day and, and the institution of the Environmental Protection Agency. And so I was just, I was interested to explore how the EPA came to exist. And, and it led to an examination of of sort of the political sphere at the time. And in particular, you know, my general understanding of Richard Nixon is is as a president is someone that um, was tricky and not interested necessarily in the environment. And yet he signed into law uh, multiple 
environmental um, acts. He created the EPA, and it just made me wonder, how do you explain this cognitive dissonance associated with Richard Nixon as a president as, and a person, and some of the um, environmental actions that he initiated? And, and so for, for those of you who are listening who may not know Richard Nixon very well, I don't. I don't know if you do, Seth. I know that he was impeached and left in scandal and, you know, had a had a sweaty upper lip during debates. But other than that, I wasn't around during the Vietnam War and protests and, and his administration. Um, so kind of giving kind of a glimpse into sort of how he ran his political campaign. What do you think? Sounds good. All right. So. Richard Nixon and quote unquote his Madison Avenue handlers uh, are seen to being one of the first to invent the modern political culture war. And what that means is sort of setting up straw men of, of antagonists to fight against and saying that you're good because you're going against someone bad. And, and we obviously see that in our current political sphere, but they're one of the first recognized to kind of do that on a more modernized and professional basis. Uh, he exploited mainstream America's suspicion of hippies, calling drug legalization Timothy Leary. I don't know if you know who Timothy Leary is. Yep. Uh, if you want to share uh, your perspective <laughs> on that, Seth, or not. Uh no, I want to go down too deep into Timothy yeah. Leary. Yeah, that, that's fair. Fair. We don't need to do. I mean, to do that other than. Anyways, uh, Nixon called him the most dangerous man in America, which maybe he was, depending on your perspective, but probably was a bit of an overstatement. Three days before National Guard members killed student protesters at Kent State University, Nixon described anti-war demonstrators as bums blowing up the campuses. He fueled rumors about homosexuality in the press corps. Uh, he created and fanned a panic about drug use to vilify black people and anti-war protesters, leaving a legacy of punitive and ineffective drug policy that is tragically still with us to a certain extent. And he promulg promulgated that the Vietnam War represented a cultural divide between hard hats and hippies. And so I, I bring this up because you show, you show that his political strategy was trying to create divisions versus trying to bring people together. Well, I like, I mean, hearing some of the terms you mentioned too, the way he labels groups of people to vilify them is really reminiscent of kind of like a Donald Trump, right? Which is. He who must not be named. Yeah. But it really becomes this vilification of things because then it allows the division gets you, hey, you're either on this side or that side. Um, yeah. And so for someone to do that and to, to help create the EPA, there must have been enough political pressure and enough pressure from voters in the number numbers wise that he had to do something. Right. Yeah. And, and that was my question, because this this strategy that he employed, at least in our current uh, political ecosystem would have been a perfect straw man to set up and say that I'm I'm fighting against this overreach and 
bureaucratic uh, oversight. But he didn't. And so why, in a, in a sense? And, and it even stands out in some of the quotes that he had to prove that he really didn't have an interest in the environmental movement. There was a, a quote that he had while discussing, uh, having a discussion with Henry Ford II, going back to show kind of how far back we actually are kind of going here, uh, where he said uh, the movement, the environmental movement wanted humans to go back to living like a bunch of damned animals, which I thought was a was a great quote to to share, and, and also speaks to. I, I believe the most recent uh, global climate meeting in Saudi Arabia, I think the, one of the Saudi Arabian leaders of, of the meeting had some quote about, you know, people wanting the environmental movement, wanting people to go back and live in, the, in, in caves. So it was very reminiscent of, of, of that statement. And I thought it actually kind of made it, even though Henry the Ford, Ford the second who knew Henry Ford the first, obviously, and has long passed away. Uh, the 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 words that are still being thrown around about the environmental movement are are quite similar. Now that makes perfect sense. I think um, just I guess for my to quick synopsis is. You know, in the 60s, yeah, they're the hippies. They're the Timothy Learys, who's part of the psychedelic movement. You've got a war going on, um, which is the Vietnam War, right, when Nixon's coming in as well. A country that's basically very, very divided anyway. And he's coming in, and he comes in late into 19, I believe, 69. Yeah, he's 68 election. Yeah, 68 election. So he comes in at 69. Johnson is out. Um, the Vietnam War was just completely divisive. You do have what they called hippies versus that. You have uh, desegregation happening with these campuses. You have a lot of movement and civil unrest across the country. And one of the things, to your point, is people are really going, hey, we've got to save the earth. Right. I mean, by yeah. 1970, when Earth Day took place, it wasn't the first year of that it was more of a formation and culmination of kind of going, we've got to do something. Um, almost to signify what's going on and to remind ourselves about the Earth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really was a movement that um, crossed the political divide there. It, it had uh support from both political parties and was something that had a lot of influence and power amazingly and it, i think we 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 sort of want to highlight a couple instances that sort of speak to maybe what led to a more uh majority opinion that environmental acts were important and one of them being the Santa Barbara oil spill that happened in January 1969. But before they, you jump into that real quick, yeah. though, 62, Science Spring comes out by Rachel Carson. Yeah. And over half a million books are sold. And people all of a sudden are going, wait, that stuff I'm spraying in my house 
you know, because the U.S. is going through 80 million gallons per year, 80 million pounds, excuse me, of DDT per year. Yeah, the thing is that airplane, airplanes are spraying on me as they fly over my town. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's being sprayed it's everywhere. Cool. Yeah, no one's thinking this is going to impact us. They're going, hey, not no one, but majority of people don't think it's going to help impact them. They're going to be like, why would the government spray this? Or why would people spray this if it's going to hurt us? It only impacts insects, right? It takes that book coming out where all of a sudden Rachel Carson's like, hey, doesn't impact just insects. This is not an insecticide. This is a biocide. Anything living will die because of this. And all of a sudden, and then chemical companies, government officials, people go after her and just choose to attack her and her credibility as opposed to looking at science. And um, and people get it. And there's a movement around it going, wait a second, what else don't we know? Right. And then over the years, certain things happen. And then 1969, major moment, two major moments happened. So why don't you talk about the first one, too, which is Santa Barbara? Yeah, the Santa Barbara oil spill, it, it was an oil leak from uh, offshore drilling that was led to about 210,000 gallons a day uh, going into uh, the coastal waters. Uh, residents were shocked uh, and activist groups kind of came out of it. Nixon being from California and, and, and having uh, a home on the Central Coast wound up touring the site uh, in March just after his inauguration and said all the right platitudes to address it. Uh, the images coming out of it were were significant. You know, you've seen images of, of large oil spills and the birds dying and, and choking in in the sludge and it, it, it had a it had a pretty large impact on on how people were viewing um, industry and, and their practices and then in June of 69 in Ohio the Cuyahoga River becomes so polluted that it actually catches on fire yeah and this yeah, fire river is not supposed to catch on fire that's correct that's correct the river is not supposed to catch on fire so you have all these issues and that actually spurred an avalanche of water pollution control activities such as the clean water act the great lakes water quality agreement and i think to your point it brought national attention to water pollution issues and i think you have something happening in Ohio and you have something happening in Santa Barbara and maybe 20 years earlier, even 15 years earlier when TVs weren't as prevalent, it would have maybe just hit maybe a local paper, maybe a major town paper. But in this age, in the late sixties, when everything in the wars on TV, when Debates are on TV when you're watching people land on the moon in 69. It's on TV. It's massive. And this these images stick in your mind. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they definitely do. Yeah, and I think, you know, there, there's movements in this direction already based off of other things that have happened, especially the Air Pollution Control Act um, and smog, as mentioned, in London. Uh, so... 
there was already some movement in this direction, but it, it seemed it it just seemed to be building to the point where, combined with everything that we've already discussed, it, it was reaching a point of 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 impact. And so, what is the first step towards the EPA? So we have all these issues happening. We have. Silent Spring happening, which is the DZT ban, people all of a sudden waking to the fact that these chemicals and these chemical companies aren't necessarily being as forthright and or they don't know themselves, but these chemicals can really impact us. One, two, you've got oil spills and probably one of the first major oil spills where people all of a sudden are like, what the heck is happening in a major town or major part of the country? Where the beautiful coast, you go California. What what's doing? What's happening here? You got a fire happening on a river, which isn't supposed to happen, right? And all of a sudden, you go, "Wait a second, what the heck is going on in this world?" Yeah. What's the first step towards the EPA? Like, what were those first moments? I guess are the election of Richard Milhouse Nixon was the first step, okay. and I say, and I say that in in a sense because the creation of the EPA is a political action. And so, and it is a federal action. And, and so the administration and the Congress at the time was really the, the key element of, of initiate, initiating some of this. And, and I think that this story is, is very interesting in the sense that it, it, it demonstrates how movements and political situations can lead to concrete uh, actions. And I think it starts with that election because in the 68 election, although Nixon won the electoral vote by a significant margin, 301 to 191 over Hubert Humphrey, the popular vote, he only won by 0.7% which is about five half a million votes out of t- out of a total of 73 million votes which i didn't know about and i remember the gore bush uh election and and how close that was i remember the uh clinton trump election where she won the popular vote but he won the electoral votes and how that was a major moment in in the history of of presidential elections. But I didn't realize that this one also was very close to being uh, something similar where one person wins the popular vote and the other winds up winning the electoral vote. So that being said, I think the reason I bring that up is that Nixon, although he won the election, felt uh, that he wasn't on the most solid footing, that he needed to build up further coalitions to uh, make sure that he was successful in his first four years and that he could be reelected in his for a second term. She had a politician politicking post presidency, right? Getting elected to your point. And then, well, how does, but how does the EPA work into this? What was the, is he, is he writing it? He comes in because this is all happening. I mean, January is when Santa Barbara hits. He just, takes office. I don't know if he's even inaugurated at this point. Yeah. He might have yeah. just been inaugurated. Just, just inaugurated. He's okay. he's brand new. He's 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 
lost the 60 presidential election. He's a lifetime politician. He's, he's finally achieved his goal. He's not the most, he, he's not very, he doesn't trust people. He, he's looking for enemies around every corner. Um, he doesn't, you know, he's, 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 a, he's, he's not a very, conf, he's not a very confident politician at this time. And so what winds up being important is the people around him, the key players around him, especially within his administration. And, and one of them was a man named Russell Train. Uh, he's a former Republican judge. He helped found the World Wildlife Fund. And he was set up to lead a task force uh, between in the transition between the election and when Nixon was inaugurated uh, on and on natural resources uh, to to basically come up with recommendations for the administrative administration's priorities. And this report that was presented in December of 1968 recommended the administration give high priority to environmental management, asserting that unchecked pollution would eventually destroy the fitness of this planet as a place for human life. Another key player is a gentleman named John Ehrlichman, who acted as White House counsel. He was assistant to president on domestic affairs. His past was a land use lawyer. He was a passionate environmentalist. He came from uh, the state of Washington. And so he uh, agreed with the report's conclusions and ensured that it played an influential role on Nixon's legislative and policy planning. Uh, beyond that, there's another man named Walter Hickel. He's a former oil company executive. He wound up turning into an environmental advocate. He he advocated against projects that were that would have had a negative impact on the Everglades in Florida, and he was a key member of the administration as the Interior Secretary for for Nixon. Uh, John Whitaker was also a close confidant of Nixon. He joined him on his first presidential campaign in 1960, and he was a geologist. He loved the outdoors. He was a de deputy assistant on domestic affairs, and he was supportive of, of this environmental element of things. And so it's crazy to think about in, in this day and age of the divide between Republicans and Democrats, but within the inner circle of Nixon's recently elected tenuous administration, there are some serious advocates for the environmental movement. So he puts together essentially part of his administration. He's getting people that actually do care about the environment, trying to take into account. And to your point, you're probably, um, and what you're suggesting is, hey, he's doing this. He needs to have more people on his side. He didn't get, he didn't win by a bunch. He needs to figure out a better way to do this. Yeah, and I think it was almost a lucky circumstance in a sense that he had people that he brought into the inner circle of his administration who cared about this, even yeah. though maybe he didn't and he would he didn't have enough brand bandwidth necessarily to want to decide on every element that should be a major focus of of his presidency. But these folks did and they played a key role in presenting it to him as a political advantageous route for him to take got it and so what happens what's the first moment um 
I guess the first thing we see tangible that comes out of after these two big incidents in 69, what's the first step in the EPA formation that's tangible? Well, one of the first acts that Nixon put in place was the Endangered Species and Conservation Act. And that was that was a, a big moment. And everyone knows about that. Uh, he also signed the National Environmental Policy Act in on January 1st, 1970. Um, and that was the precursor to the EPA, even though it says EPA in it, it, the act is something different. And the act required federal agencies to assess the environmental effects of their proposed actions prior to making decisions through environmental impact statements. And going back to, uh, I believe it was, Walter Hickel, he was one of the first to introduce these environmental impact statements as something useful. And so they integrated that into the National Environmental Policy Act, which is very important because environmental groups discovered that they could use this requirement to sue uh, companies and holding up the licensing for nuclear power plants, oil drilling, and construction of, of pipelines. And so that element, uh, which I don't think was fully appreciated by the administration at the time, is really uh, where the teeth are when it comes to ultimately how the EPA works. And, and that act, going back to some of the key players, we discussed those that were part of the administration, which are key players, but the other two were Democrats and part of the opposition party and probably also played a key component in forcing Nixon's hand to uh, take action and, and sign these acts. Because one of them was Edmund Muskie, who is a Democrat from Maine, a very uh, talented politician. And he actually was uh, Humphrey's running mate as vice president in the election that uh, Nixon just won. And so he was identified by Nixon early on as a potential uh, opposition in 1972 and for the second term. And so he wanted to probably do anything to sort of uh, mute his impact and, and his result. And one of those, one way of doing that is by uh, claiming that the acts that he's putting forward actually are the result of your administration. And that's sort of what, what happened here. Uh, another major uh, Democratic uh, senator involved was a gentleman by the name of Henry Jackson from Washington. And they played a key role in drafting the National Environmental, Environmental Policy Act. And uh, the internal members of his administration that wanted to push this agenda uh, introduced it and convinced Nixon that it was a good idea to sign. And Nixon probably in his political calculations thought he could circumvent the uh, the the publicity, the positive publicity that Edmund Muskie would get out of it by uh, signing it himself. Wow. So there's all this politicking happening around the environment that actually plays in to help us overall. I think the National Environmental Protection Act to your point, so just so I understand it, so this happens in January of 1970, so one year he's in office, it's signed. 
and it gives environmental groups or does it give any group the ability to sue? I'm just trying to understand. You're saying that was the teeth of something that was allowing us to help. Yeah, the, 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 pri the primary element where it, it allowed environmental groups to have an impact on holding up projects that they disagreed with was the requirement that all industry and, and, and projects needed to produce environmental impact statements to get approved before, before initiating a project. And so if they didn't do that, environmental groups could sue. If they did do that and the impact statements were either disagreed upon or demonstrated negative environmental impacts, they could also use that as a leverage point to, to hold up uh, projects. And it, it became, a, it, it's, it, remains an, it remains a huge uh, thorn in the side of, of industry because they have to pass through this hoop before they can get get anything built. And is this just to, so this is interesting to me too, does this actually, is this the catalyst or the, I guess the start of your, like your entire position in San Francisco right now, building demolition, does it trace back to this in a lot of ways too? Because do you need, you require companies to have environmental impact statements and engineers to do that beforehand so is this like the roots or the seed or is this kind of like am I yeah just I, I i'm not sure i i mean i'm sure there's some tangential connection there i i don't think it's it is really the the key the key connection but it did it did create a situation where the government the federal government is requiring environmental review before projects can take place and that has led to probably some of these state laws that have been developed since that kind of feed down to the local level as well awesome okay so 1970 january this is when this happens this this goes into place the nipa then when does the actual when is the EPA, how much longer before the EPA is actually a group itself? Yeah, so I mean, we're looking at Nixon's presidency. He signed the Endangered Species Act in 69, the Environmental Policy Act in 1970, Earth Days in April 1970. And then in July 1970, Nixon calls for the establishment of the EPA. And so under really quickly, there's four major events in, in the environmental movement that are going to have lasting impact. And the interesting part that I didn't understand before this about the formation of the EPA was that he signed it as a, as a reorganization plan of the government. So it's called the reorganization plan number three, which called for the establishment of the EPA. And it, it came about largely because it related more to his goal to shrink the federal government. And so what this what signing this reorganization plan did, which makes it avoid the need to go through any legislation stuff, is that he wanted to bring a reorganization of 
44 different government offices bring a consolidated a consolidation of their functions in in certain areas related to the environment and bring it under one agency and so it wasn't necessarily an effort to create a effective environmental agency it was it was almost an effort to shrink government and i think a, a maybe more recent example of that was when the department of homeland security got established as a response to the the september 11th attack that they wanted to bring all these uh agencies that were touching on elements of of this uh, in, in under one roof to make it more impactful and also to shrink uh the the size of government although in both instances it winds up leading to the creation of almost a bigger government agency that is being uh seen as something that needs to be eliminated even though it started out as a way to shrink the federal government ironically wow so what's the first step when the epa comes in what's their what happens and so what i think what we're doing is we're getting to by the end of by the end of 1970 we have the epa form what's their first initiative or what's their mission at that point yeah it you know i think again going back to sort of where this came from trying to bring these different agencies together to treat air pollution water pollution and solid wastes as different forms of a single problem under basically the environment and bringing a unified anti-pollution leadership together and they agreed and the house and the senate subcommittees agreed to the the new regulatory agency and then at the end of the year um they confirmed the placement of the of the first head of of the agency in december of 1970 and at that point it was established and ready to go got it so they're established by the end of 1970. We're in a good spot. If I understand correctly, so the creation of the EPA, you could say it really starts with, a lot of people attribute it to 62, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, and this idea that, you know, chemicals impact us, all these chemicals we're spraying impact us, impacting the environment, impacting every living thing. In 69, by the time, and the 60s are just full of a lot of just divisiveness, um, into segregation, the Vietnam War, hippies, like people are saying hippies, like, what was, you know, like Richard Nixon say hippies, the psychedelic movement, this vilification of old guard, new guard. And yeah, it's, it's the end of the post-World War II boom. Yeah. And you have this and then it takes a couple nixon comes into at the nixon comes into power in 69 part of his team is a person that would help start or fund the world wildlife wildlife fund so someone that was concerned about the environment we're lucky with that we get that 69 had two major things that occurred uh with the environment one being the santa barbara oil spill two being the Cuyahoga River fire in Ohio that is now instead of just being a radio thing or local news paper that might not may necessarily hit millions of people 
is on TV and definitely does hit millions of Americans and people are fed up with it and want some type of regulation or some type of punishment to these corporations that are essentially behind all of these um, issues. And the rest of 69, they're working on this NEPA or the National Environmental Protection Act that is signed in January of 70. In April of 1970, Earth Day takes place. By the end of 1970, we have our first EPA director and the formation of EPA taking place to kind of like with the idea that, hey, we need to protect the environment if we want to live here for future generations, right? Yeah, and you know, or, or to, to reinforce the idea that this movement really had traction, the first Earth Day had over 20 million people involved across the entire country. So there's, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of political momentum attached to this. And the, the EPA wound up being created as an attempt to streamline government, but based off of this movement and the passage of multiple legislative acts from the Endangered Species Act to the National Environmental Policy Act to the Clean Air Act to the Clean Water Act, all of a sudden there's all this new legislation that's been created in a four-year span that ha that's empowering this new agency to have real power over industry and, and environmental decisions. Well, I can't wait. I mean, I know this will be the next episode or one of our next episodes, which is really breaking down some of the major milestones we see that occur because of the EPA, which is everything from clean air acts to clean, to leaded, to unleaded gas, to lead out of paints, things like that. So I want to dig in on that. Is there anything else you want to cover with the formation of the EPA and the history of that? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that captures most of how it came to be, which I think is a pretty fascinating story. I think I, you know, there's so many great uh, Nixon quotes. You gotta, you gotta end the conversation with another one. And I thought this was one was fantastic. So, and this actually connects back to almost the start of the environmental movement in the U.S. Anyways, which was the National Park Service at, at Yellowstone, and 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 in the early '70s. They were celebrating the centennial of the National Park Service. And Nixon didn't want to go, so he sent his wife. And he was left behind to complain privately in, in the White House while probably drinking a scotch that the national parks are only for rich backpackers who have several weeks of vacation. And damn if that's not true. Yep, yep. There it is. Well, look, I mean, this is great. I really appreciate it, Eric, too, walking us through the formation. And I'd love to kind of dig into the major milestones of the EPA and talk about the importance of it, because I think it's, it is important. Um, say what you will, we do need government agencies to protect people for the good, because we've seen when left unchecked, these government, these private companies will not do so. They'll, when given the chance and when seeing the the actual data, when they do the scientific study again and again, they choose profit over people. Yep. Corporations are people, my friend. 
Yeah, I mean, but we look at, you know, the chemical companies, we look at, um, you know, these chemical companies that occurred, the oil companies and all they knew. I mean, like, you know, California is suing these oil companies going, you knew about it. You had scientific studies. Johnson Johnson has studies back from the 50s that say, hey, talc cannot be mined without having asbestos in it. This yeah. will kill people. We know asbestos causes cancer. They're like, great. Just file that report. Let's keep selling baby powder. baby powder. Yeah, let's keep selling baby powder. Yeah. And Sorry, that, that the corporations are people or is a riff on Romney's uh, failed presidential campaign when he quoted said that at a debate. Oh, got it. Okay. I'm or just, in response to a, a town hall or something where someone was complaining that corporations don't spend, pay enough taxes. And he went, well, corporations are people, my friend. At least in the it, at least in the IRS they are considered people, but shows shows that he didn't have much of a heart. Yeah, I mean, I just I look at this and just go, you know, without these regulations, you're not going to get it. It's really how quickly can government, as new industries pop up and new things are being built, how quickly can government step in to help regulate it? Although a lot of people don't like regulation. It's shown time and time again, every new industry needs regulation sooner rather than later. By the time we do regulate, generally a generation is lost to all of the side effects and fallout from it. Yeah, and I'm excited to look into where the EPA started, which we just got to, to where it is now over the last uh, 40, 50 years, because the, the political winds obviously have shifted back and forth multiple times. And Supreme Court has started to weigh in on some things. So it'll be a very good story to tell. Sounds good. Well, thanks, Eric. Looking forward to these next ones um, on the EPA and some other deep dives. And I hope you have a great week. You too. Thanks.